No point in saying good morning because it certainly is not one. No point in saying good morning because it certainly is not one. No point in saying good morning because it certainly is not one. It doesn't matter how many times you listen to that video. I've listened to it about 500 times. It does not get less funny. My eyes are actually watering, watching, listening to this on repeat. Listen to it again. Listen to it again. No point in saying good morning because it certainly is not one. There's no point in saying good morning because it certainly is not one. It absolutely is a wonderful morning. This is so surreal. A month ago, we sat down together right after the leaker at the Supreme Court leaked the draft majority opinion that showed us that Roe v. Wade was most likely going to be overturned. And it was unexpected to see that document from the leaker. Um, and because of that, it was a very emotional for everyone, but it was still just barely out of reach. It wasn't quite tangible. It wasn't concrete. It wasn't real. Until today, today it is real. The Supreme Court has overturned Roe v. Wade. They overturned Casey, which is Casey versus Planned Parenthood. It's the partner, um, it's the partner ruling to Roe versus Wade, and it's gone. 49 years after Roe v. Wade codified abortion into law across all 50 states in our country, it is over. It now goes back to the states and I don't know about you, but this is pretty surreal. It's pretty surreal. The 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 thing that was hitting me the most this morning was the historical significance of this because I feel like oftentimes the millennial generation, maybe even more so than Gen Z, but the millennial generation, we struggle with purpose, we struggle with meaning, we struggle with what our place is in in the world, in our country, maybe even in our families, our communities, our own lives, um, because we enjoy such prosperity that was begot by the greatest generation fighting socialism and Nazism and communism all over the world and enshrining the freedom that we enjoy um, to produce this prosperity, we kind of struggle with self-identity. But now we are actually witnesses to the most incredible historical development in, in our lifetime. We are, we've been part of this. We've been fighting for this since the day the Supreme Court invented um, this, this quote-unquote right to abortion in the Constitution. And our nation is going to change. Our, our laws are certainly going to change. Our lives are certainly going to change. And the rulings, the ruling is very interesting. It was a 5-3-1 ruling, meaning five justices ruled to overturn Roe, three justices ruled to uphold Roe, and then one justice, silly little Roberts, the chief justice, he uh, also ruled to uphold Roe, but also uphold the Mississippi law that would have banned abortion at 15 weeks. So let's dig into all of this. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show. By the way, guys, while you're here, while I have you, if you could like my show on YouTube, if you could subscribe and give me a five-star rating and a beautiful review, as Trump always says, on um, Apple Podcasts, that would be greatly appreciated. It helps the show. It helps us reach more people. It helps our message get out. Um, it also helps, helps me get you content better because you will be notified every time I drop new content. So like, subscribe, give us a five-star rating and a glowing review. Should we play it again? Should we, should we play it again already? No point in saying good morning. <laughs> Because it certainly is not It one. certainly is not no one. No point in saying good morning. A good morning, it certainly is not. I, I, this is never going to get old to me. This makes me laugh every single time. Okay, let's look at this. Let's look at some of these rulings. So there, there, what's interesting and what's different than what we talked about when the draft opinion was leaked was that was just one document. That was just Alito's draft opinion. But we actually have um, four documents this time. We have this draft opinion, the, the opinion of the court written by Alito, and then we have a concurring opinion, meaning Thomas 
also signs on to Alitos, but he wrote his own. Kavanaugh did the same thing. He concurred, um, signed on to Alitos, but wrote his own. And then we have the dissent, the three liberal justices. So that's a, that's a lot of words. It's, a, it's about uh, 213 pages of rulings um, here from the Supreme Court. So let's start reading some of the good stuff here. Some of these lines, man, are so good. This is what Alito writes. He goes, we hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. The Constitution makes no reference to abortion, and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, including the one on which the defenders of Roe and Casey now chiefly rely, the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. That provision has been held to guarantee some rights that are not mentioned in the Constitution, but any such right must be, quote, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. Alito says the right to abortion does not fall within this category. Until the latter part of the 20th century, such a right was entirely unknown in American law. Indeed, when the 14th Amendment was adopted, three quarters of the states made abortion a crime at all stages of pregnancy. The abortion right is also critically different from any other rights that this court has held to fall within the 14th Amendment's protection of liberty. Rose defenders characterize the abortion right as similar to the rights recognized in past decisions involving matters such as intimate sexual relations, contraception, and marriage, but abortion is fundamentally different, as both Roe and Casey acknowledge, because it destroys what those decisions called fetal life and what the law now before us describes as an unborn human being. Do you have the chills yet? Because we're just getting started. This is, I mean, Alito writing this opinion is, he's, he, He's not going to hold the place in history that he deserves because this is masterful writing. He goes, stare decisis, the doctrine on which Casey's controlling opinion was based, does not compel unending adherence to Roe's abuse of judicial authority. Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the decision has, been, has had damaging consequences. And far from bringing about a national settlement of the abortion issue, Roe and Casey have, been inflamed, have inflamed debate and deepened division. He says it is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. Now, there's where I would probably go one step further and say that the Constitution requires us to actually protect Unborn babies, not just leave it to a popular vote, but uh, banning abortion at the federal level. That, that's, a, that's a conversation we're going to have in the coming days. But right now, I want to keep reading what they wrote. This is what Alito says about the history, whether or not abortion was part of our national fabric before the Supreme Court ruled on it. He says, until the latter part of the 20th century, there was no support in American law for a constitutional right to obtain an abortion. No state constitutional provision had recognized such a right. Until a few years before Roe was handed down, no federal or state court had recognized such a right, nor had any scholarly treatise of which we are aware. And although law review articles are not reticent about advocating new rights, the earliest article proposing a constitutional right to abortion that has come to our attention was published only a few years before Roe. Now, this is really interesting because when we get to some parts of the dissent, this is what the dissent relies on. The dissent relies on the idea that precedent can't be overturned and that abortion is part of the history of our nation. And Alito destroys them. I mean, this is like, this is like one of those YouTube videos that says that should, that should say Alito stomps on leftist arguments for abortion because this is, this is, this is stomping on an argument here. So he says, not only was there no support for a constitutional right until shortly before Roe, but abortion had long been a crime 
in every single state. At common law, abortion was criminal in at least some stages of pregnancy and was regarded as unlawful and could have very serious consequences at all stages. American law followed the common law until a wave of statutory restrictions in the 1800s expanded criminal liability for abortions. By the time the adoption of the 14th Amendment, three quarters of the states had made abortion a crime at any stage of pregnancy, and the remaining states would soon follow. Roe either ignored or misstated this history, and Casey declined to reconsider Roe's faulty historical analysis. Okay, then, then he says, okay, so that's the historical aspect. There's, there's no fabric of abortion in our nation. But what about this idea of viability? Because that's what Roe is built on. Roe and Casey uh, invented the trimester. I mean, the trimester framework that we're all familiar with, first trimester, second trimester, third trimester, that was invented by a court, not by the medical field, not by, not by ethicists. This was invented by the courts. And originally in common law, there was a distinction between um, the quickening in your womb, which basically means when you're able to feel your baby moving or your unborn baby moving. And legally, there were different penalties based on whether quickening had happened, whether the mother had felt her unborn child. But they, they destroy this idea that, that a, a quote-unquote pre-quickened baby is not, is not a baby or is not a human life. They say the original ground for drawing a distinction between pre- and post-quickening abortions is not entirely clear, but some have attributed the rule to the difficulty of proving that a pre-quickening fetus was alive. At that time, there was no scientific methods for detecting pregnancy in its early stages. And thus, as one court put it in 1872, until the period of quickening, there is no evidence of life. And whatever may be said of the, of the fetus, the law has fixed upon this period of gestation at the time when the child is endowed with life because fetal movements are the first clearly marked and well-defined evidence of life. Which I find to be pretty interesting. So it, it's, it's like viability, that viability isn't really a scientific term. It just, it's a reflection of our medical knowledge, our ability to recognize reality. It does not, um, it does not define reality. So they dispense with the, with the quickening or the viability argument very quickly and then they say the inescapable conclusion is that a right to abortion is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions. On the contrary, an unbroken tradition of prohibiting abortion on pain of criminal punishment persisted from the earliest days of common law until 1973. They say, instead of seriously pressing the argument that the abortion right itself has deep roots, supporters of Roe and Casey contend that the abortion right is an integral part of a broader entrenched right. Roe termed this a right to privacy, and Casey described it as a freedom to make intimate and personal choices that are central to personal dignity and autonomy. Casey elaborated, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one, one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. The court, this is one of my favorite parts, guys. I know that this is maybe one of the more obscure, obscure arguments, but this is one of my favorite lines coming up here. The court did not claim that this broadly framed right is absolute, and no such claim would be plausible. While individuals are certainly free to think and to say what they wish about existence, meaning the universe and the mystery of human life, they are not always free to act in accordance with those thoughts. License to act on the basis of such beliefs may correspond to one of the many understandings of liberty, but it is certainly not ordered liberty. Boom, boom. They go on ordered liberty, this is Alito, sets limits and defines the boundary between competing interests. Roe and Casey each struck a particular balance between the interests of a woman who wants an abortion and the interests of what they termed potential life. But the people of the various states may evaluate these interests differently. Again, this is where I differ from Alito. I don't think that people can simply 
determined by popular vote whether someone else is deserving of protection um, of their of their basic right to life. But um, then Alito drops it, absolutely drops the hammer on the dissent on Kagan Sotomayor, Kagan Sotomayor and Breyer, and says the dissent is very candid that it cannot show that a constitutional right to abortion has any foundation, let alone a deeply rooted one in this nation's history and tradition. The dissent does not identify any pre-Roe authority that supports such a right. No state constitutional provision or statute, no federal or state judicial precedent, not even a scholarly treatise. This is pretty harsh for people who, for justices who are supposed to, or at least reportedly very friendly with each other, this is very harsh critique from them. Um, then they go to this idea, well, can you overturn precedent can you, if it's settled law, as the pro-aborts like to tell us, can it be overturned? They say, we next consider whether the doctrine of stare decisis counsels continued acceptance of Roe and Casey. Stare decisis plays an important role in our case law, and we've explained that it serves many valuable ends. It protects the interests of those who have taken action in reliance on a past decision. It reduces incentives for challenging settled precedents saving parties and courts the expense of endless relitigation. It fosters even-handed decision-making requiring that like cases be decided in a like manner. It contributes to the actual and perceived integrity of the judicial process, and it restrains judicial hubris and reminds us to respect the judgment of those who have grappled with important questions in the past. Precedent is a way of accumulating and passing down the learning of past generations, a font of established wisdom richer than what can be found in any single judge or panel of judges. That was a quote directly from Neil Gorsuch. He said, we have long recognized, however, that stare decisis is not an inexorable command, and it is at its weakest when we interpret the Constitution. It has been said that it is sometimes more important that an issue be settled than that it be settled right. But when it comes to the interpretation of the Constitution, the great charter of our liberties, which was meant to endure through the long lapse of ages, we place a high value on having the matter settled right. Now that part just gives me like goosebumps up and down my arms. This is the part that that was in the original draft opinion that we that we saw a month ago. And they say, Alito says, in addition, when one of our constitutional decisions goes astray, the country is usually struck with a bad decision unless we correct our mistake. An erroneous constitutional decision can be fixed by amending the Constitution, but our Constitution is notoriously hard to amend. Therefore, in appropriate circumstances, we must be willing to reconsider and, if necessary, overrule constitutional decisions. I, this is where I almost feel emotional just read. I mean, I know that this is like nitty-gritty legalese, but this is where, this is what we've been fighting for. This is what we've been fighting for for 49 years, for these things to be recognized, because the original ruling in Roe v. Wade was not constitutional law. And as the law clerk for Harry Blackman, who authored that, that original opinion on Roe, said it gave no pretense of even trying to be constitutional law. It was invented, and there's always been these reasons to overturn it. Even putting, if you can, putting the ethics of abortion and the morality of abortion aside, our Constitution does not contain a right to abortion whatsoever. This putting, if you can, aside the ethics of abortion and the morality of abortion for a second, there was never any justification. There is no right, inferred or otherwise, in the Constitution that allows you to kill your unborn child. And 
interesting and fun fact about this ruling. I, I've been pretty, I've been, I've been pretty skeptical about how Amy Coney Barrett would rule on this, and she ruled in the right and proper way. And I want to give her due credit for that. But here's a really fun fact. So Roe v. Wade was ruled on by nine men. This was a Supreme Court that was consistent, that was entirely male. And so the overturning of Roe v. Wade includes more female justices than the Supreme Court at the time that invented this ruling, which I find I, any time we can take a leftist argument and we can turn it on its head, even if we accept their premise for one second, is a good day in America. You might even say, you might even say it, it's, it's a good morning in America. I think it's time for the video again. No point in saying good morning. Because it's, it, certainly it certainly is not, is not one. one. Oh, but it is. <laughs> this video, this Pelosi, um, this is what happens. Pelosi, this, this, this is what happens when you get your talking points from Satan, when, when that's who you're quoting here. If you'll notice her face doesn't look any different. Her, expre her expression when she's expressing the sorrow doesn't look any different than when, she, when she's expressing happiness, um, which, you know, make of that what you will. So obviously this overturning Roe v. Wade does not outlaw or prohibit abortion across our country. It gives it back to the states. This is where I take some issue with the ruling from the Supreme Court. But in all practicality, what does this mean for our country right now? There are 13 states in our nation that have what that have what's called trigger bans in effect, meaning they pass legislation at the state level that in the event that Roe was overturned, it automatically makes abortion illegal in their state once, once they retained or regained that right um, over their own over their own state. So some states that have trigger bans that went into effect automatically today, Idaho, Utah, Wyoming, North Dakota, South Dakota, Texas, Missouri, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee, and Kentucky. And um, there are even more states who had laws that were overturned or stopped by the court system because of Roe v. Wade being the precedent. So they could easily, they could easily bring those laws back. So um, my prediction is that there will be at least 20 states where abortion is completely outlawed in our nation. But as of right now, at least 13, we're already, we're already at 13 hours after this decision has been, has been handed down. So, so who's the thanks for this? Who, who, who's responsible for killing Roe? And this is a very interesting little thought experiment to see, okay, obviously the Supreme Court is responsible for this. Um, Thomas, Gorsuch, Alito, Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, they're the ones who, they're the five votes that, that, that overturned Roe, and they deserve tremendous thanks for their courage as well as um, recognition that this was their duty and prayers because their safety is now going to be in jeopardy. But the more interesting part of this is this is actually thanks to Donald Trump. This is thanks to Donald Trump because three of these justices, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, were nominated and confirmed during the Trump administration. And these weren't straightforward nominations and confirmation processes. Gorsuch was, um, is, is on the Supreme Court. He signed on to this opinion because Trump, because, well, actually, take it a step further, because McConnell refused to hold a hearing for Merrick Garland, who was Obama's nominee on Obama's way out the door. Um, Trump appointed Gorsuch, who is a constitutional originalist or traditionalist. Um, same with Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh, if, if Donald Trump had not only appointed him, but had not fought with him against the false accusations of sexual assault and rape gangs and all that nonsense that CNN was spouting, this would not have happened if Donald Trump had not said, you know what, we're not going to wait for the next administration, wait for the election to see which president's going to be in office in January, and, and I'm, I'm going to, if he had said, I'm not going to exercise my, my duty and my responsibility as the chief executive to appoint a, success for, a successor to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who turned out to be Amy Coney Barrett, this would not have happened. And I find this to be phenomenal for a couple of reasons, because 
one of the arguments that never Trumpers gave us during 2016 is they said, oh, Trump's not really conservative. He, you know, he's not going to govern in a conservative way. And he, he did govern in a conservative way. But one of the defenses or one of the arguments that a lot of us saw in Trump, even though we didn't know how he was going to govern in a lot of ways, we saw that he had given us a list of justices. We saw that he was really serious about filling the vacant seats in our judiciary with, with judges who adhered to the Constitution. And you know what? It turned out to be right. We turned out to be right, and the Never Trumpers turned out to be wrong. So not to rub this in their face, but a little bit to rub this in their face. Also, choose your fighter. Understand which wing of the Republican Party is correct, which wing fought the wrong fight. I mean, there, there were people, and I'm, I'm, there were people, David French, Jonah Goldberg, Stephen Hayes, who did, so much didn't want Trump that they were willing to dismiss the idea that a president is influential over abortion policy. This is actually a tweet from David French in 2020. He said, I'm told that if I don't support Trump, I'll have the blood of unborn children on my hands. Is that true? The short answer is no. A longer look at the issue shows presidents don't have much influence over abortion at all. <laughs> okay. Okay, well, this president, President Trump, appointed three Supreme Court justices, all three of whom voted to overturn Roe v. Wade. I think that's pretty influential over abortion policy. I think that President Trump is to thank for the fact that we are now living in a post-Roe America. McConnell, too. McConnell gets a lot of heat, and even from me, rightly so, because he's not that conservative. His wife is pretty much compromised by the Chinese communists, um, and he's supported gun control. I mean, he, he's not really ideologically conservative, but I'll tell you what he is. He's a darn smart politician, and he will not be pushed around when it comes to these judicial appointments. If McConnell and Grassley on the Senate Judiciary Committee as well, if McConnell and Grassley had not fought for first Gorsuch and then Kavanaugh and then Amy Coney Barrett, this would not have, hap have happened. Because remember, the Democrats told us that there was this long precedent in our country when Trump uh, nominated Amy Coney Barrett. They said there's this long precedent that a president on his way out does not appoint a nominee, that you that you wait until, until after the election. And McConnell was extremely influential in directing conservatives and rep elected Republicans who were actually echoing this little Democratic talking point. He was like, no, 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 no. The actual history, the actual precedent Precedent here is if a president appoints a, a Supreme Court justice, but the Senate is the Senate majority is held by the party that does not that is not the president's party, and that was obviously a huge distinction because when when Obama was president and he appointed Merrick Garland on his way out, Republicans held the majority in the Senate. But when Trump was on his way out and he appointed Amy Coney Barrett, Republicans, his same party, held the majority. This is a critical distinction that without McConnell. This would not have happened. We also have to thank Harry Reid, Senator Harry Reid. Without Harry Reid, a radical leftist Democrat, this would not have happened. Harry Reid abolished the filibuster for judicial nominees. And if he had not, I don't think we would have gotten 60 votes. I don't think any of these three justices would be on the bench. And man, it is true that, you know, you should only, you should only make laws, only make rules that you're comfortable with following because that one came back to, to bite the left in the good way in the good way, not to them, but to us in the good way. Also, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the notorious RBG, uh, she should have retired under Obama. That should have been obvious to anyone in the political sphere, but she didn't. She didn't retire because she, you know, for her, she didn't put service to her country first. She put herself and her own legacy first. And because of that, she died during the Trump administration because she didn't have 
you know, control over her own mortality, as none of us do. Um, so thanks to her for not retiring. Thanks to Kavanaugh for fighting back, for not just rolling over and saying, oh, well, you know, we, we, I, I apologize for making someone uncomfortable. Let's get a more, a more centrist nominee. Thanks to him for fighting back. And then thanks to, thanks to God for all the pro-lifers who since 1973 have spent decades fighting for life in states across the country, in pregnancy centers, at state legislatures, national marches, electing politicians, changing hearts and minds. I mean, if this does not show you that the culture wars are worth fighting, I don't know what does. Because we all have this desire for instant gratification. And if we fight a fight and a month later or two months later or six months later or a year later, we have not achieved our objective, we say, well, maybe it's not a fight that we can win. Pro-lifers, fought for 49 years. Some of the people who started this fight have since died. It's gone on to a second generation, and without, without these pro-lifers, um, we wouldn't be here where we are today, where all of these unborn babies are not going to be aborted. And I, I almost don't even know how to properly address that, because it's so surreal, it's so hard to wrap my mind around the fact that in Texas, in Texas, there was a young girl, an 18-year-old girl who got pregnant unexpectedly, um, unintentionally got pregnant, and she got pregnant with twins. And Texas has, has essentially, had essentially, prior to this ruling, outlawed abortion, and so she didn't get an abortion. And when pro-lifers heard about this, they raised tens of thousands of dollars for this girl and her boyfriend and their baby twins. And this is, this is what we're facing now in our country. This is our time. This is our time to celebrate that Roe v. Wade has been overturned, that these new, these beautiful, these precious, these valuable lives are protected as they should be, and to act to make sure that in your red state you have created a bulwark of politicians who are committed to making abortion illegal, to making sure that blue states, if at all possible, restrict abortion in the most restrictive way that, that, that voters, not politicians, that voters will consent to, and that, that we pray, that we pray for the safety of the justices, we pray for these babies, we pray for politicians, and we, we just thank God. We thank God for all these lives that are going to be saved. This, this fight, Roe v. Wade being overturned, this is not the end of the road. This is just the beginning, and my goodness, are we honored to be fighting this fight together. Thank you for watching today. Thank you for listening. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show. All right, before I let you go, you might notice that I'm in a different studio than I usually am. It's because I'm here in Santa Barbara, California. I'm speaking at the Young America's Foundation conference um, today. Really excited. In fact, we're going to be diving even deeper into this topic. We're going to be responding not only to Pelosi, but to AOC, to the violence that the left is threatening, and talking about exactly, um, exactly what the left is deliberately trying to hide when it comes to this now state-by-state -state battle of abortion. It's going to be... Um, it's going to be great. You can actually watch live. We're live streaming it. You can go to my YouTube channel. It's Liz Wheeler Show YouTube channel. You can go to um, Young America's Foundation, YAF TV, their YouTube channel. It's at 1045 Eastern Time, 745 Pacific Time, whatever time zone you're on. You'll figure it out. Um, you'll figure it out. Um, it's going to be great. I'm really excited about it. The kids here are so great. The Young America's Foundation is training the next generation of culture warriors, which... <laughs> as we just talked about, is key to taking back our country. So um, really an honor to be here and a thank you to uh, the Young America's Foundation for having me. And, you know, I'll leave you tonight with, uh, with, I think, the best thing, one of the best things that happened today, and that is...
No point in saying good morning <laughs> because it certainly is not one. Oh, it certainly is a good morning. Thank you, Pelosi, for that. And thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show. The Liz Wheeler Show is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Chad Abbott. Director of photography, Kevin McRoberts. Editor, Alejandro Figuerilla. Sound mixer, Robin Fenderson. Director of marketing, Emily Wachler. Production and talent coordinator, Matt Toffler. And senior publicist, Patricia Jackson. This has been a Soundfront production.